Well, as they're making their way out, I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 19. And as you're finding your place there, I just want to let you know that today may be a first for me. I don't know that I've ever preached after some sort of Godfather spoof. And maybe back in my student pastor days, I might have preached after some sort of barf, barf um, illustration or game. So that might have been something I've done in the past, but it's been a long time. So it's a day of first for me. It might be a day of first for you as well. But again, we're super excited that you're here today. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 19 on this friend day. Obviously, as you've seen in the songs that we've sang, the music we've sang this morning, that uh, we're talking a lot about friend. And uh, really, there's nothing quite like a good friend. Uh, hopefully, your friend invited you to church this morning, but there's nothing like a good friend. There's nothing like uh, knowing a person who also knows you, and together you, you, you share this amazing and wonderful uh, mutual affection for one another. Came across a story of two friends with this sort of love and this sort of affection, this sort of commitment for one another. These two young men were inseparable. They had met uh, as young children, young boys, and they went through their adolescent years and then um, finally decided to enlist in the army together. They went to, through boot camp together and there at the early stages of World War I were uh, shipped overseas together and fought side by side in the trenches there in Europe. One day during an attack, one of the men was critically wounded in a field that was littered with barbed wire obstacles, and he was unable to crawl back to his foxhole. Their entire area was just uh, overrun with the enemy, and fire was, crossfire was going everywhere, and so it was absolutely suicidal for anyone to run out there and, and to get him and drag him back to safety. And yet his friend, who had grew up with this, this young man and went to basic training with this young man, who was shipped overseas with this young man, his friend decided that he would try. But before he could get out of the trench, his sergeant yanks him back into the trench and orders him not to go. The sergeant yelled at him and said, it's too late. You can't do him any good. You'll only get yourself killed. When the sergeant turned his back, as you probably can imagine, the man took off, running for his friend. After a few minutes, he staggered back, mortally wounded with his friend, now dead in his arms. And so the sergeant was angry, but at the same time, he was moved by this act of selflessness. But he said, what a waste. He's dead and now you're dying. It wasn't worth it. But the young man with almost his last, last breath, replied to the sergeant and says, oh, yes, it was, Sarge. When I got to him, the only thing he said was, I knew you'd come, Jim. I knew you'd come. I knew you wouldn't leave me out here. You see, friendship, one of the true marks of a friend is that a friend is there when every reason for him or her not to be there is in place, but they still stand by your side. See, to we, when to be there is sacrificially costly to the person, but they still stand with you, that is what a friend is. It reminds me of what Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Today's a special day for us. We call it Friend Day. We've set it aside on our calendar as a church to simply focus our attention and to focus our energy on our friends. 
Today is all about sharing with our friends the one thing that is most meaningful, the one thing that is most purposeful, the one thing that has changed and made a difference in our lives more than anything else, and that is Jesus Christ. There's no other thing that we could ever do for our friends that's greater than telling them the story that has changed our lives. And so we want you to experience what we've experienced. We want you to to know what we've come to know, and that is Jesus Christ. The way the Bible dispels him to us, the way he shares his story with us, is that he's a friend of sinners. And I just want to simply speak to that this morning. And so if you've got your place there in Luke chapter 19, I want you to look with me as we read the first 10 verses, and I'm just going to kind of quickly walk through what this story is all about. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Luke tells us that he entered Jericho, that is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, that is the crowd, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner, they said. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus' name, his Hebrew name, means righteous one. But what Luke tells us here in this passage is anything but that sort of description. Luke tells us that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. He he was one who lived on the backs of the regular, common, everyday citizens. He was one who, who basically worked for the Roman Empire. He collected the taxes and the revenues that the citizens were to give to the empire, and the way he made his money was he took these revenues, he took these taxes, but he was allowed to charge more, and whatever was over and above what Rome required was his to keep. And so Zacchaeus, the Bible tells us, was a rich man. How did he get that wealth? It came from the citizens that he took the taxes from. So his pockets were lined with the extra money, and his result became wealthy. Zacchaeus was also a Jew, which made him even more deplorable to the Jewish community. You see, in his eyes, he was nothing more than a renegade, nothing more than a traitor to the nation of Israel. And so when they looked at Zacchaeus and they saw Jesus going into his house, they said he was a sinner. Here in Luke 19, what sets up this passage, what sets up this part of the story is Jesus is journeying, he's moving, he's traveling toward Jerusalem. His earthly ministry is about to come to a close. He's going to go to a cross, he's going to shed his blood, he's going to die, that's in Jerusalem, and he's headed that way. And on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples enter Jericho. 
That's where we pick up in verse 1. They're coming into Jericho, and, and the news of, a, of his arrival begins to spread throughout the city. And so Zacchaeus hears of Jesus coming into the city, and he wants to know something about this man he's heard so much about. And so he goes to see Jesus, but he can't see him. I like how uh, Luke tells us that he's a man of small stature. That's a nice way of saying he's a shorty. He's a short guy. I mean, he's like some of you guys, but I'm not going to call your names. I'm going to just look at you until you get all nervous, fearful. A man of small stature. I don't know how tall he was, but he couldn't see over the crowd. He couldn't see through the crowd. And so in order to see Jesus, he gets ahead of the movement of Jesus. He climbs up into a sycamore tree, and he waits till Jesus comes close. But in that whole scenario, something happens that Zacchaeus never anticipated. He went there wanting to see Jesus. He wanted to understand a little bit more about Jesus. He had no understanding, no anticipation of Jesus actually stopping, looking up into the tree, and spending the rest of the day with him. But that's what happens. Why would this sinner want to see Jesus? Why would this sinner want to have anything to do with Jesus? Well, at the very least, I think we could say, that he was curious, right? He's curious. Jesus is a celebrity at this point in his life, this point in his ministry. I believe the people in Jericho, just like in all the other places around Israel, they had heard of Jesus. They had heard of the miracles that he had done. They had heard of the, the, the deaf receiving the ability to hear again, the blind being able to see. They've heard of men and women who had leprosy and other physical injuries and, and issues being healed. They had heard of dead people actually coming out of the grave and, and now being alive. So the fame and the, and the notoriety of Jesus was prevalent all throughout this, the area of what we would call Israel today. And so, at the very least, Zacchaeus, one of those Zs, was curious. Jesus' reputation had preceded him, and so he wanted to know kind of what we would do. If a celebrity was to drive through Powhatan and we knew of it today, we might line the streets. I mean, if the president was to come, we might line the streets. If some other famous person, we might go out and see who it was. I remember when Kara and I used to live in Alabama there in Muscle Shoals. It's a real big uh, uh, music recording area. It was nothing to see big old huge uh, motor coaches going down the road. And you think, well, that's, uh, there's Justin Timberlake going down the road, or that's some other artist. And it was, it was cool to see, to kind of follow behind them, at least I did, and just maybe catch a glimpse of, of the celebrity. So that's perhaps what Zacchaeus is doing here. He's curious because he's heard so much about Jesus. It's also safe to say that God was working in Zacchaeus' heart. I believe that God was already working, already moving, already leading him to, to, in his curiosity, in his desire to know more about Jesus, but leading him step by step closer to where Jesus was so there could be this encounter because God was working in his heart. And the Bible tells us very clearly that lost sinners do not seek after God on their own. It's the Lord who begins to draw. The Lord begins to move. The Lord begins to woo us to be interested in the things of God. And so it was God's spirit that was drawing him to Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly how God was working in Zacchaeus' heart. Just go with me for just a moment, and let's speculate a, a few things. Uh, at, at times, I believe it's okay to, to read through the lines and think through what might have been motivating, but we don't know for sure here, right? We don't know what for sure was taking place here. But perhaps, perhaps God was working in, in some of these ways. 
Perhaps Zacchaeus knew Matthew, who was one of Jesus' disciples. You see, Matthew, or he's also known as Levi, was a tax collector until Jesus met him one day. And so I don't know, maybe all the tax collectors in the Palestine area had a network, and so they got together for lunch or brunch or, or tea or, or, or some sort of meeting together. Maybe they sent emails, inner office emails to everybody. And, and so he knew who Jesus was because Matthew had told him the story of how he met Jesus. And so maybe that day when he heard that Jesus was coming, he's like, hey, I know a guy who knows him. In fact, he's traveling with them. I want to go see this guy. I've heard so much about him. Perhaps. Matthew had been praying for Zacchaeus. And so as they're approaching Jericho, he knows, hey, my buddy, Zacchaeus, he lives in this city. He works in this city, and we're going to this place. And so I'm praying that God would move in his heart as the master comes into this city, that God would draw him to Jesus. Or perhaps Zacchaeus had become weary of his wealth and was seeking greater purpose in life. Because we all know this, the things of this world never satisfy us. You can have everything this world has to offer and still be lacking something. Why? Just because you weren't made for this world. You weren't created for what this world has to offer. You were created for more than that. You were created by God and for God. And so perhaps Zacchaeus, in all of his wealth and his position and all the things he was privileged to have, began to realize something is missing right here. I'm reminded of the old audio adrenaline song back when I was in high school in the mid-90s that, that talked about a God-shaped hole in your heart. That's, all, all of us were created like that. Sin has created this hole or, or this void where God is supposed to be placed in our lives. And the only thing that fits that hole is God himself. Well, it's impossible for us to know exactly why he sought Jesus or what God was doing in his heart and in his life, but we can know this. I want you to look at this, this statement on the screen. We can be sure of this, that the seeking Savior will always find a sinner who's looking for a new beginning. And today, every one of us at some point in our life have been looking, perhaps are looking for a new beginning in our life. That whatever we're living for, whatever we're striving after, whatever we've accomplished, it just wasn't enough. There's something else out there that, that we need or we want or we desire, and that is God himself. And so when we begin to seek the Savior, we know that he's seeking us, and he will find us and change our lives. So this truth here is evident in the fact that Jesus walked up to the very tree that Zacchaeus had climbed. Now, I don't know if there was a bunch of trees in that area or if there was only one tree, but there was a lot of people in this crowd. There was a lot of people hanging around. There might have even been a lot of people up in the trees, and perhaps that's where Zacchaeus got this idea. He saw others climbing the trees, but all we know from the story is that Jesus walked to the very tree he was in. He looks up and says, you got to come down because i got to go to your house today. A man was willing to seek the Savior, and the Savior all the while was seeking the man. And Zacchaeus obviously was honored by the request. The crowd, however, this is the interesting part of this passage, the story here. The crowd was not honored by this request. They could not understand why Jesus would do such a thing. Zacchaeus, on the other hand, became eternally grateful for this experience. You see, at some point... At some point during this lunch or this afternoon tea or whatever it was, there in the home of Zacchaeus, at some point, the person and the message of Jesus got to the heart of Zacchaeus and his life was forever changed. We know that because he stands up to Jesus and he says, Behold, Lord, 
I'll give up to half of everything I have to the poor. If I've defrauded anybody, I will repay it fourfold. He begins to go back and even go beyond what the Levitical law would have demanded for someone who stole from someone else. He's going to make restitution for his bad actions, his wrong actions, the way he's mistreated his countrymen. He's going, to, he's going to make good on all of that. Why? Because something happened in Zacchaeus' heart to lead him to that decision. He'd met Jesus. And when you meet Jesus, your life is forever changed. He was moved by the person and the message of Jesus. He was moved here to acknowledge his sinfulness and his rebellion against God. He was moved to repent from his sin and to turn to Jesus. That's what the word repent means. You're going in one direction, and you turn and you go in the opposite direction. So he was living for sin and self. Now he's going to begin to live for the Savior, Jesus Christ. He was moved to demonstrate this new life that he'd found in Christ by giving back money he had wrongfully taken from others. Today, this story of Jesus and the story of Zacchaeus is the same kind of story Jesus desires to be told about you. Jesus desires for every one of us here to come into that sort of encounter with Jesus where we begin to understand that apart from Jesus, we are undone, that apart from Jesus, we are nothing more than sinners. You see, the crowd had it right when they looked at Zacchaeus and says, he's a sinner. They had it right. He was a sinner. But the same thing is true of everyone who's ever lived. We're all sinners. And Jesus is seeking all of us. The beauty of this story is Jesus is a friend of sinners. I think that's what appalled the crowd so much. And the crowd has probably had a lot of religious leaders and other uh, good, honest, hardworking Jewish people trying to do it the right way, but they missed the gospel. And so they looked at what was taking place and they said, that's not the way you come to God. You got to come to God in, in your good works. You got to come to God in your righteous and you got to come to God in your, the way you've lived out the law and the requirements of the law. And Jesus just says, no, you can't come that way. You just come to me. I'm a friend of sinners. So what is a sinner? That's a term in our day and age that we don't use. And in fact, when we do use terms like this, it's offensive to us. It's not a very appealing term. You know, if we're not going to build a big church by saying, hey, you're a bunch of sinners and you're going to hell, right? How many of you all like that? Just raise your hand. Probably no one likes to hear that. But it's the truth. So what is a sinner? The Bible says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of of God. Every single person has trespassed the righteous boundary God has set in place. You've crossed over. I remember as a kid, I had a, I had a, I had a, what, how do I describe my dad when we were hunting? Um, a libertarian when it came to the laws when it, of hunting. We would cross people's land. I remember one time, and, and my dad's been in heaven for years, so I can speak of this, and I'll just answer to it one day, right? I was probably nine or ten years old, and I remember we had we, we'd started hunting the fringe areas of this farm that butted up against the wildlife management area. And little by little, we got further and further on this farm because there was crop, or there was pasture land, and the rest of it was all wooded. So we kind of wanted to hug the edge. And so my dad just figured, well, you know, there's no signs; it's okay to go over there. And so one morning, my grandpa, my dad, and I we park at the government side of the land. We cross fences, and we sat in this field, and we're all separated a little bit. My dad's about 100 yards from me. I don't know where my grandpa was. He was closer to the management area than we were. And I remember the owner 
I could see him coming off the road. He pulls into the property, and somehow he knew we were there. Back then, he didn't have cameras. I don't know how he knew there. He literally drove to exactly where I was, and I was just sitting there on the edge of the field, nine or ten-year-old boy. My dad got up 100 yards away, and he slipped out on me. That's, that was my dad. <laughs> Left me there by myself. So this guy is irate that we're hunting his land, and I'm, try, I'm just you know, I'm trying to make excuses. Uh, you know, I don't know what I'm saying. And so I was like, I'll go find my dad. I walk in back into the woods. I get on the, the management area land. An hour later, a, a, a wildlife officer, a game warden, finds me. And so we walk through the woods looking for my dad for another hour. If I'd have been 16, I'd have shot my dad when I got back to the truck. <laughs> Lawless. My dad was a sinner. And I've tried my best in my adult years to not be a sinner while hunting. I try to obey the rules, but there's times that old nature comes out in me and, and it gets the best. Trespassing. That's the idea there. We were trespassing. Sin is when we trespass, we pass the boundary of what God said is right and what God has said is wrong. Uh, the other idea of sin is this idea of we've missed the mark. So I, I'm, a, I'm a bow hunter, so when I shoot, I want to hit the mark. I want to hit the, the bullseye there. And so when you don't hit the bullseye, when you don't hit what you're shooting at, you've missed the mark. And that's what sin is. God says when in your life, the way you're to live, this is exactly what you're to do. This is exactly how you're to live. And any variation from that is missing the mark. It's sin, and it's falling short of the righteous, holy standard of God. And he tells us that all have sinned and fall short of You know what the word all means? I heard a couple of preachers joke about this recently as I listen to certain guys uh, over throughout the country each week uh, on podcasts. But they joke and say, you know, in the Greek, all means all. And it really does mean all. It's every one of us sitting here. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. You see, the reason we've sinned is because it's our nature as sinners to sin. Just like Adam and Eve, our first parents, we have broken God's design for our lives. Sin has then separated us from God, who is our creator. It's brought us under the just judgment, the just wrath of our holy creator. And so sinners, you and I, are those who have sinned against God. We sin because it's our nature. We sin because it's who we are. We are sinners who've sinned against God. Whether or not we like the term sinner that's found in this story, it's true of every one of us. But I want you to see more importantly than the fact that we are sinners, I want you to see the overarching truth, and that is there is a friend of sinners, and his name is Jesus Christ. Let me share with you real quickly three things that Jesus demonstrates here in this passage. Number one, Jesus seeks out sinners. Verse 5, Jesus walks up to the tree, and he says, Zacchaeus, I love that he calls his name. Can you imagine? You're, you're a guy just trying to catch a glimpse of this celebrity coming through the town, and the celebrity knows your name. Well, how, would you, how would that have made you feel as a, as a tax collector, as a sinner sitting in a tree just wanting to catch a glimpse? And he walks up, and he says, hey, buddy, I, I, Joe, I, I need you to come down here. Sally, I need you to come down. We're going to have fellowship today. I've got to go to your house. Jesus sought this man out. Zacchaeus thought he was seeking Jesus, but in reality, Jesus was seeking him. His very purpose for being born into this world was to seek and to save lost sinners. That's what verse 10 says. I've come that they, to seek and to save the lost. So this morning, today, on this day, on this friend day, none of us here are here by accident. 
You're not even here because your friend invited you. You're not here because your friend picked you up or your neighbor stopped by your house and picked you up. Yeah, that's how it happened, but you're not here because they orchestrated it. You're here because a sovereign, loving, gracious God has been working and orchestrating things so that you could sit and hear this story of how much God loves you. You're here because the God who created you and loves you today is seeking you. He desires to be in relationship with you. You're created for this very purpose, to be in relationship with him. You were designed perfectly to relate. There's no other aspect of creation that so perfectly relates to God than human beings. So this is why Jesus seeks after you today. It's because he loves you. It's because he cares about you. He's moving heaven and earth to make this evident to you this morning. There's a second thing Jesus demonstrates, and that is he accepts all sinners. See, in verse 7, the crowd or those people who were watching this thing happen, they asked the question, how could this happen? How could this man go to eat with this obvious sinner? He's a tax collector. He's a Jewish person that's turned his back on his countrymen. How could Jesus do this? Jesus looks at Zacchaeus and says, I don't care what you've done. I don't care about your background. I don't care about your baggage. I don't care about your brokenness. I don't care about any of those things. I accept you just as you are. How many of us this morning need to be accepted by God? We're so burdened down by what others think about us. We're so burdened down by trying to live in in this bubble, this facade that we've created. We try to be certain things. We wear this, this mask on and we try to act it. I joke with you all the time that all of us fight on the way to church, right? And you get out of the car and you just put this beautiful smile on. You walk up like everything's wonderful. We know that half of us are not doing that. Now, we didn't have a fight in my truck this morning, but it's pretty rare that we don't have some sort of spat in the truck. Maybe it's because we didn't have all the kids. I only had two of them. But that's just a fact of life. We're all broken, flawed people. And so this crowd, these religious leaders, might have been appalled by the idea of going to Zacchaeus' home, but Jesus was not appalled by that. Zacchaeus' lifestyle, Zacchaeus' choices did not affect Jesus' acceptance of him. But don't misunderstand acceptance. Don't misunderstand approval here. They're not one and the same. Jesus accepted Zacchaeus the way he was, but he did not approve of his lifestyle or his choices. Otherwise, there would be no need for salvation. There would be no need for the gospel message. There would be no need for a cross, for blood to be shed, or for a tomb where a body was buried. If Jesus just says, no big deal, come on in. He accepted him, but he did not approve of his life. Jesus understood that the lifestyle and the choices of Zacchaeus would be taken care of and changed upon salvation. Their removal was not the means of salvation. In other words, Jesus didn't require Zacchaeus to clean himself up or to get his act together before he could be forgiven. So many times when we come to church or we hear about the gospel, we hear from our friends who are trying to plead with us and tell us their story of how Jesus has changed their life, we begin to think that we have to clean ourselves up so that God will accept us. But he, that's not the way it works. He does not accept you because you cleanse yourself up. He says, just come to me. He says, get in here. He says, I love you. I mean, just taking this story here, he looks up into the tree and says, come down, come down. Let's go home to your house. Come to me. Get in here. Be a friend. Be my friend. I love you. I care for you. I love you just the way you are. I love you in your brokenness. I love you in your mess. I love you in your sinfulness. I love you just the way you are. And I'm going to remake you into something beautiful. But get in here. Jesus accepts all sinners. 
Third thing, Jesus transforms sinners. Verse 8, we see this transformation. Zacchaeus stands and says to the Lord, Behold, the Lord, there's the key right there, Lord, Lord. You see, when Jesus becomes the Lord of our life, transformation begins to take place. No lordship, no Christ. No lordship, no transformation. He transforms him. Then he goes on, he says, The half of my goods I give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. See, Jesus loves us just where we are, but he will not leave you there. Aren't you grateful for that? All the mess that was in your life prior to becoming a Christian, I think for some of us, we forget what we were like before Jesus. And you don't have to be an axe murderer or a, a pimp on the side of the street with a bunch of ladies that work for you. You don't have to be the worst of the worst of the worst to be able to look back and say, this is how I used to be before Jesus met my life. You could have been that, that choir boy and, and the Sunday school teacher or, or whatever it was before you came to know Jesus and your life really wasn't that bad, but you still remember the purposelessness that you had. You can still remember those sleepless nights. You can still remember what it was like to not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Jesus is a transformer. I want you to listen to how Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. These will be on the screen for you. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, he's saying, if this has been your life before, you just know you're not going to heaven. You're not in relationship with God. If this is indicative of who you are as a person, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But I love what he says going on in verse 11. And such were some of you. Hey, people he's talking to, he's saying this. This used to be your life. You used to have these tendencies. You used to be the sinful type of people, but you were washed, he says. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Jesus transforms sinners. Today, you may be a man who struggles with immoral thoughts and fantasies, but Jesus can transform your life. Today, you may be addicted to pornography. Ladies, you might have been in an adulterous affair at one time or living that out even right now. You might have aborted your child at some point in the past. You might struggle with gender identity issues or have homosexual tendencies. You might be a thief, a swindler, an alcoholic, a drug addict. You might be the biggest jerk in the county, and everybody hates your guts because you're just, you're just that type of person. I was going to use a word I probably couldn't use, shouldn't use in church. None of that matters to Jesus. He loves you. He died for your sins. To pay, what, you say, what does that mean? I hear this, he died for me. What in the world does that mean? This is, this is what it means. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. There's a payment that has to be paid. God in his holiness, God in his righteousness doesn't just say, Come on in. No big deal. I'm just going to kind of pass it off. I'm going to sweep it under the rug. You see, what happens when you sweep the dust under the rug at your house? It comes back out. God doesn't work that way. 
And so he's got to clean it. And the only way he can clean it is to pay the full price for it. And the only way for that to happen is for a sinless one to lay the life down for another. And that's what Jesus did. God the Son steps out of heaven, steps into this world as a human being. We know him as Jesus Christ. He takes flesh upon himself and he dies as a perfect blameless sacrifice. God the Father exhausts all of his wrath upon his son so that the sins that you and I carry and the sins that we commit are laid upon Jesus and all of God's wrath is exhausted on Jesus who carries our sin. That's what it means that Jesus died for you. You don't have to die and to bear the penalty for your sins. Jesus has done it for you. Why? So that you can be in relationship with him and he can transform your life. Such were some of you. See, Jesus never has asked us to clean up before we got saved. He just told us to bring our brokenness to the cross and lay it down. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Jesus transformed this sinner's life. And he immediately wanted to live right because he had been made right with God. I think that's uh, key as well. I think that's a clue to this, this transformation. Zacchaeus wasn't just satisfied with just religious stuff. Zacchaeus met Jesus and he says, man, the things in the way that I've been living have got to change. And today, if there's been no change in your life after you prayed a prayer or were baptized, you had church membership or whatever your experience has been religiously, if there's never been a dramatic transformation in your heart, I wouldn't call myself a follower of Jesus. If you're simply holding on to a prayer or holding on to a baptism or holding on to your grandma's relationship with the Lord or church membership or whatever that is that you're holding on to, but there's not been transformation in your life. And I'm not talking that you just got to be this ultimate, like I said earlier, you're, you, you were once a murderer and now you're a, you're a Bible preacher and, and you know, this stark contrast. No, but there ought to be something in your life that you can say, I'm not the way I used to be. I don't think the way I used to be, but understanding that there's still so much room for growth. But a disciple, a disciple of Christ is someone who has been changed and is being changed by Jesus. Those two friends who went to war together loved one another, looked out for one another. They were friends regardless of the conditions. One's mortally wounded, laying on the battlefield. The other knows that if he gets out of the foxhole and he runs to his friend, most likely he too will lose his life, but he runs to his friend. They were going to stand by one another's side, even when there was every reason not to do so. Today we learn from this passage that Jesus is in an infinitely greater way, in an infinitely greater way, stands by your side as a friend. He is a friend of sinners. He seeks you. He accepts you. He desires to transform you. Why does he want to do this? It's because he loves you. It's because that's what the Bible tells us. All of Scripture is pointing this out. The Bible tells us that we've been created by God. We've been created for God. We were created for this wonderful relationship with him. That's the good news of Scripture. God loves you today. The bad news is what this text has also been telling us, that we have all sinned. We've all fallen short. All of us are wicked to the core. We're separated from God. We're under the judgment of God. That's the bad news. Our brokenness plays itself out in so many different ways. Zacchaeus was a broken man. But the best news of the scripture is this. 
is Jesus just said, come, come down. Zacchaeus, I want you to bring your brokenness to me. Zacchaeus, I, I want to come to your house. I want to fellowship with you. I want to have uh, uh, this meal with you. I want to talk with you. I want to spend time with you. I want to be in a relationship with you. So bring your brokenness, bring your mess, bring your junk, bring your sinfulness, bring everything that, that personifies your life. Come to me. Lay it down. That's the best news of the Bible. This morning, we're all broken people. And we can fake it, and we can try hard, and we can try to modify our behavior and do all these different things. And, and sure, there's, there's benefits to all that, but ultimately none of that will change us until we come to Jesus and allow him to transform from the inside out. Jesus is a friend of sinners. I remember years ago when I was in college, I've told our people this many times, that I... Uh, grew up in a nominal Christian at home. We would go to church off and on for seasons of the year. And, and then the last year of my dad's life, he was killed when I was 15 in a work accident. I remember uh, God really transformed my dad's life through some situations with my mom and dad and their relationship. And God used a bad circumstance to bring my dad to his knees. And so I, the last year of his life was the greatest spiritual year he'd ever had. My final memory of my father is watching him read his Bible before he went to work that day that he was killed. It's a good memory to have. But when I um, think about my life and what I grew up in, we went to church during that time. I remember my sister came to know Christ. I knew that was something I needed to do, so I prayed a prayer one day at church the end of the service and his response time like we're about to have and I went home that day and I remember standing in the garage looking back out through an open garage to the house across the road and I literally either said verbally or I thought very clearly in my head something was I thought something was supposed to change that was what I was internalizing or perhaps even outwardly said I knew in that moment that there was no transformation in my life. I'd simply prayed a prayer. Next Sunday, I got baptized. And for the next five years, I tried to force that decision, that prayer, that baptism into a life that was spiritual. Never worked. I graduated high school. I went to a Christian school during that time, met a lot of good friends. One of those friends was, he and his wife were here this last weekend, leading our marriage conference, had great influences in my life, but all the while knew I was lost. Even taught Sunday school, though my freshman year of college. And so I'm a Sunday school teacher of seventh grade boys. I'm having two quiet times a day. I'm church all the time. I'd been a leader in my student ministry in high school. I, I was trying, I was the poster child for what a Christian ought to look like as a teenager. But I was miserable. I remember one time very vividly, uh, my mom and sister were gone doing something. They weren't back, and it was like an hour, maybe two hours past when they were supposed to be home. And I think, goodness gracious, I've missed the rapture. I literally thought this. I was scared to death. And so what do you think I did back then? This is when we didn't have cell phones as prevalent as today. I got that old phone with a big cord, and I picked it up, and I dialed someone that I knew was going to go to heaven. They picked up the phone, and I hung, I hung it up real quick. I was scared. All the while, I knew I needed to be saved, but you can't just do that on your own. God was working in my heart. So I remember, I think it was April 24th, 1997. I'm a date guy, so that's why I remember things like that. That morning I'd read in my time with the Lord out of 1 John chapter 5. And a verse says in that chapter, he who has the Son, Jesus, has life, 
He who does not have the Son does not have life. Finally, God took that verse and placed it upon my heart, and I was willing to say, I've been religious. I've tried to make this work, but I have no life. In fact, I'm miserable. I'm probably more miserable today than I would be if I was just saying I'm a a hellion and living like that. But I'm trying to be religious. I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to make my religion fit into this relationship. But there's only a God-shaped hole. There's not a, a religious hole in our life, right? And so I remember wrestling with that all morning. I went to work. I was, uh, that, that semester, I went to school Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Tuesday, Thursday. I worked all day at a plumbing and electrical supply house. I remember getting away into our showroom in the front, away from my coworkers. I got down on my knees on the bathroom floor, put my shoulder or my hands or elbows on the throne, and I went to the throne. And I said, Jesus, I've been religious. I'm trying to make this work. I have no life. I surrender and yield to you. And I remember when I stood up, and I'm not a mystical guy. I've probably told this to you before, maybe one-on-one. I'm not a religious, subjective type guy. I, li- I live in the area of objectivity probably too much. But I remember when I stood at that, at that moment, my watch be- beeped 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and for the first time in my life, I felt free. I felt free. Has it been perfect since then? <laughs> I, I, testimony right here, she could tell you, no, there's, there's been some days not so good. But Jesus changed my life that day. He was a friend to a sinner. I was the Zacchaeus in the story. We could go around the room this morning. We could tell all of our stories, and we could all testify and say, I was Zacchaeus. I was in the tree. Just want to catch a look. Jesus came to me and said, I want you to come to your house. I want to, I want to be with you. This morning, we're going to have a time of response. On this friend day, the reason we've made this a special day is because we believe the greatest need in a person's life is to be in relationship with Jesus. We believe that the greatest thing we could do for our friends is to tell them about Jesus. That's not the only thing we're going to do, but it's the most important thing. So we're going to have a time of response in just a moment. Nick's going to come. He's going to play. We're going to stand and sing. But here's the invitation. Here's the time for response. If this morning you're realizing that the greatest need in your life is the relationship with Jesus, I'm going to encourage you to respond. I'm going to encourage you to respond publicly. We'll have encouragers, uh, and they're going to help me with this. And so if that's you, uh, I'll, I'll receive you here. I'll pray with you, hear what your, what your need is, what your decision is this morning. I'm going to pass you off to one of our encouragers. They're going to take you out and share with you the gospel and pray with you and encourage you. This morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, you say, you know what? I've been walking at a guilty distance. I know I'm in a relationship with Jesus. I just haven't been living the way I should. I want you to come. We'll get you with one of our encouragers. They'll help you. They'll pray with you. They'll encourage you. This morning, maybe you're, 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 God's been working on you and you realize you need to be baptized. We've baptized several recently. Here, here's a great thing. God's doing some good things in our church. In the last 11 months, I think, we've baptized 17 people in our church. God's doing some wonderful things here at Red Lane. I don't say that to brag, other than to brag on the Lord. It's just awesome what God is doing right now. God's bringing new people into our church. So, so maybe you've been visiting with uh, with us for some time, and, and you realize, man, this is the place I need to be. And so if that's a decision, I want to encourage you to make that public this morning. Maybe you just need prayer. You can come, and, and I'll pray with you. I'll get you with someone to pray. Or you can just come to these steps and make them an altar to yourself and pray to the Lord. So I'm going to invite you to come publicly. I'm also going to do something else. If for whatever reason you just refuse to come publicly, you still need to make your decision aware to somebody. So if you look at the screen, I'm going to do something crazy. You can text your decision to the Lord. This is his phone number. He gave it to me. 
kidding. It's my phone number. But this is a simple way. I understand that a lot of times it just makes people freak out to, to make a public decision. I think you should make a public decision. At some point you will. But this morning you say, I don't know about coming for but I'm willing to talk more about this. Here's what I would ask you to do. If you're just saying, I won't come, even that statement makes me uncomfortable, but um, I understand. But if you're just hesitant this morning, I want to encourage you to just take a minute, if you've got a smartphone or a phone that can text, and say, you know what, I want to talk more about what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus. I need salvation. Just simply text BELIEVE, maybe your name. If you feel like you need to rededicate, type in rededicate. Baptism, baptism, membership. If you want to join the church, type membership. If you just need some prayer, then I or someone this afternoon will call and follow up with you and help you with this decision. It's a little different. We've never done this before here. I don't know that we're going to do this every week, but on this special day, I wanted to give everybody every single opportunity possible to follow the Lord's direction in your life. Cool? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you're a friend of sinners. And this sinner standing on this stage with this microphone is grateful for that. Because in April of 1997, a friend of sinners met a sinner who changed his life. I've read the testimony of how Zacchaeus, a sinner, met Jesus and his life was changed. And this morning, I know across this room, there are many who could say the very same thing. There are also others who today need to set aside religion, set aside sin, set aside anything and everything that would hold them back from putting their faith and trust in Jesus. God, I pray for Christians who have been walking at a guilty distance that today would be the day that they rededicate. There's a fresh start, as one of our guys has recently said. I pray for others that need to be baptized. Perhaps they've made a decision for Christ. You've changed their life, but for whatever reason, they've never been baptized. Others, Lord, you're leading to join our church. Some just need prayer. This has been a hard week. There's a lot of things going on in their lives, a lot of things happening in their families, a lot of uncertainty. I thank you, God, that you care about every detail of our life. There's nothing beyond your loving arms. So, Lord, in this time of response, help us to do, that, to, to do just that. To respond in faith and to respond in repentance. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Won't you stand to your feet? This morning, if you need to come publicly, and I would encourage that as much as possible, you do so. If you would rather text me, have somebody to follow up with you later, you do that as well.